How do I sound now? Now, that's more like it. Alright, so. We're gonna try this again. See how it sounds now. Testing, 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 testing. test that shit see what it actually so if i'm still at negative 20 i need to come up more 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 right do we need to go all the way up here max max me out on the main mix and then down 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 yeah let's see what that sounds like all right all right we're back once again and we're gonna try this like this we'll see how it works um, I think this is take two of baked and awake January bonus episode edition of the podcast uh and yeah, I um, totally recorded about a half an hour of this on my uh, internal laptop microphone that uh, sounds terrible and uh, in no way was hooked up to the mixer meaningfully. Uh, so although I was uh, jamming to tunes that were coming through my uh, headphones, my studio monitors, which were plugged into the uh, mixer... <laughs> The only other thing that was plugged into the mixer was my phone, which was running the music. So, yeah, I was in a bubble. You guys were in a bubble with no music and me enjoying the music and telling you stories. And that wasn't going to work at all. So, here we are. Uh, so, we're back. And let me go back to my notes here and see what the heck, how it went. It didn't go too bad first time around. Uh, you guys might have enjoyed it. We got got a bonus episode here it's not necessarily like a short five minute episode or anything i don't know what it'll end up being just yet but we'll probably get close to uh we'll get close to that hour we'll see how it goes um let's see jump right in we're recording on january 25th 2018 by the way and um, it's a thursday afternoon I want to, before I get into the content, I want to thank my uh, latest five-star uh, reviewers on iTunes, MD5 Holmes, uh, my friend uh, Mr. Holmes, I happen to know this person is a mister, and uh, I've uh, been acquainted with them for a number of years already, and so uh, your review is all the more appreciated, uh, and you're listening as always, uh, I appreciate all our offline chats as well, so we'll talk about some of that stuff that uh, you mentioned in your review in upcoming episodes. Don't worry, buddy. I'm looking forward to 
can touch on some of that very content. Uh, terpenes and cool edible recipes, cool ways of using the plant in our lives, you know, different than we have all these years. Uh, the other uh, recent five-star review is from my friend Mike Peacock at uh, On the Edge with Mike Peacock Podcast, a fellow Western Washington podcaster. And uh, Mike, thank you for your thoughtful words as well and for listening. Uh, and I know you listen to uh, numerous episodes of the show, so thank you so much. Um, everybody, I can't stress enough how uh, helpful it is to get those reviews. It really helps with discoverability. And maybe one of these days when you uh, type the word baked or a new person coming to iTunes and uh, podcasts in general types that word in, we'll come in somewhere towards the top of that list, uh, which isn't always the case right now. But I digress. Thank you so much, guys. Um, all right. Getting to it, though. And I'm fortunate I have just enough left of my XJ13 that I had a little bit more of when I was doing this uh, introduction of our strain of the week on take one, but that's fine. Uh, XJ is a, is a cool and kind of semi-legendary uh, Washington, um, you know, popular strain. Um, one that we've seen, you know, probably since the birth of the uh, medical market around here pretty, pretty soon after, uh, that and not, not, uh, predating that because as the shrewder among you might surmise that 13 in XJ13, and, and I'm like facing a funny way right now because I'm like dribbling with a little bit more of that Burnwell Keef. You guys keep getting mileage out of me, Burnwell, because this Keef keeps going, uh, really far. <laughs> I'm still not done with it, so good, good looking out, you guys. Good value. I think it was like, you know, 20 or 25 bucks for, you know, a good program of this stuff that's lasting. So, uh, anyway, XJ13 is related to the UW G13 strain, uh, according to Leafly here. Let's read what they have to say about it. And this XJ, by the way, is from uh, my own uh, grow smooth sailing cannabis down in Tacoma, Washington. So, uh, that's why I have this right now. So, XJ13, according to Leafly, is a sativa-dominant strain, which I would agree with, cherished for its therapeutic potency and enjoyable euphoric buzz. This hybrid cross of Jack Herrera and G13 Haze induces unencumbered cerebral effects, perfect for stimulating creativity and conversation. As if we needed another reason to love this lightweight sativa, XJ13 consistently exhibits a strong citrus aroma, accented by notes of earthy pine. Novice consumers looking for an easy, paranoia-free experience can depend on XJ13 as a surefire way to relieve stress and mood-related symptoms. So, if I can give you my personal take on this, um, when I was crumbling it up just a little while ago and getting it into the bowl uh, every time I handle it. It does have a pronounced citrus top note. I believe that's the limonene terpene is the one responsible for that the, for the most part, although the pinene would be indicated, seem to be indicated by their pine description there. And, you know, I have a pretty dull nose, so if I can smell it at all, um, you know, most other folks can smell it, but it gets all over your fingers and gets right up in your nose when you're handling it, and it's, it's a wonderful uh, top note. I tend to, you know, 
trend indica in my selections most times. Uh, and those of you who have listened to the podcast even once to the very end, uh, any given episode, you, you've probably heard me sign off with my, you know, semi, uh, famous and quite obligatory, uh, you know, tagline. Smoke indica. Do shit anyway. So, uh, I'm having some fun with that, but that's, you know, me expressing that that, uh, you know, the indica, uh, types of strains that I tend to favor, I do so because they vibe with my, my body personally in a good way. So, uh, that is to say they chill me out. They let me sit in one place. They uh, help me relax. I'm a fired up, you know, high strung kind of person and, uh, you know, probably don't need much more help than my morning coffee to, to, to stay up, you know, uh, perked up for the day for the most part, other than my afternoon slump once in a while, which probably can be attributed to sleep and diet more than anything else, right? Um, so I like the indica, though, because it, it helps me stay uh, mellow. Uh, sativas are often known for a bit of a uh, anxiety-inducing characteristic, and I would certainly attest to, at the harsh side, that uh, being something that will happen uh, to me to varying degrees. So you're not going to slip it past me at a party or at a social setting when, <clears throat> you know, we have uh, something that we're sharing. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's get a sip of the here. Grapefruit, also known as pomplamoose, today. Lovely. Always a favorite. Um, sativas, you know, tightness in the neck, uh, you know, itchy eyeballs. Uh, you feel like somebody's watching you. You, you know, feel edgy. You, uh, you know, these are things that certain people will characterize as things that they will experience on the harsh side with sativas. Uh, sativas, I feel personally, tend to. Um, Hit me with a little bit more of the tinnitus uh, effect, the ringing in the ears that some people will uh, occasionally associate with certain, you know, smoking of cannabis or uh, a lot of times dabbing. Um, uh, I encounter the ringing of the ears much less so with indica-leaning uh, concentrates than sativa-leaning, and, and uh, certainly than, you know, hard sativa-leaning. So, uh, on the milder side, something that happens to me and that has happened with this XJ as I've smoked it a bit, and I'm about to put fire to this bowl as well, um, is I won't clench my teeth or grind my teeth, which is a habit I have both in sleep and when nervous or stressed, and it's not a good one. Um, it'll, uh, I'll suck my teeth. So another, you know, undesirable, not fun, not, uh, you know, really something that you want to be doing. Uh, habit that uh, a sativa can do to me and that this XJ does a little bit when I'm, you know, when I go smoke a little bit more of it than I need to. So, um, what I do with sativas to stay friends with them is I just smoke a little bit less of them, right? And therefore, the effects are more on the positive end of their respective, you know, spectrums of what they're trying to offer. Um, so, Hopefully you understand where I'm going with that, and that may be a pathway for, you know, some of you to, you know, perhaps be okay with certain hybrids or approach them differently. You know, we have the, we're the ones with the control on that. We can, you know, uh, mediate our dosing 
lot of different ways. You can go slower, you can smoke less, you can, you know, do a lot of different things that way. So. Alright, that's XJ13. Good times. Let's smoke it and see what's what. I say let's smoke it, but you guys already know this is take two. So, why don't we jump right into our story then? Alright, we got our first story comes from a friend of mine from Instagram. Patrick over at Burning Media Network. So Patrick, thank you for this uh, post from a couple days ago, which of course will be in the show notes for all of you to go and find both Patrick and Burning Media Network and this post about the California class action lawsuit that's being uh, filed. I don't know if it's a class action lawsuit, excuse me. It's a growers association in California that got together and is suing the state right now over the large-scale cannabis farms that they do not want to see uh, okayed. Uh, here in California in the new brand brand spanking new California legal market. Um, what's this story all about? This comes from uh, maybe uh, maybe you got this from Newsnug. I think so. Uh, Burning Media Network reports though, Growers Association sues state over large scale cannabis farms in California. The California Department of Food and Agriculture has defied the will of voters by allowing large scale marijuana farms a group representing growers alleged in a lawsuit filed Tuesday. Okay, and this is just this past week. At issue is a dispute that has divided the industry over whether the state should prohibit sizable cultivation facilities for the first five years of legalized retail marijuana sales, which started January 1st of this year. According to Hezekiah Allen, executive director of the California Growers Association, filed the suit in Sacramento County Superior Court, the farm-sized caps are essential to stop the industry from becoming, quote, Big Tobacco 2.0 and protect the relatively small growers he represents, particularly in Humboldt County and other Northern California counties. So this is interesting. Is there a dichotomy going on there? I don't know. Uh, I'll ask my California listeners to help us out with this uh, after hearing this story and checking it out. Um, or if you're, you know, part of it and know what's up at all, please reach out. Get me on Instagram, Baked in a Week. Get me on email. Talk to us at bakedinawake.com. Get me on Facebook if you have to, if that's your preferred. Although, spend less time over there, right? All right. Uh, counterpoint. On the other side. Steve D'Angelo of Harborside, who runs two large Bay Area dispensaries and one of the biggest cultivation sites in the state, has argued that larger grows will keep costs down, a necessity with prices already going up due to taxes and other costs associated with legalization. So, you know... I commented on this post of his right away that I found this very interesting to see this face-off happening like instantly upon the uh, launch of the California legal market. So um, I'll be watching this space and this story um, for developments. And I hope uh, those of you, as I said, who may have some insight to offer of any sort uh, would you know take a moment and share it with us. Uh, thank you again to Burning Media Network for that story. So... Alrighty, next up. In true bonus sewed fashion, we're just veering right off of the cannabis tracks. And by the way, the XJ13 is definitely serving its uh, caffeinating purpose right now. I'm sure you guys can tell. Um, the 
let's take a little bit more of that before we talk about a fun and interesting topic. <laughs> How fungi saved the world. And no, we're not talking about psilocybes right now. So, no, yep, I know you're thinking, oh, great, another pot podcast talking about mushrooms. You know, no, we're not, uh, not magic mushrooms anyway. Although what they did was pretty darn magic. And um, I will include a link to a very interesting book uh, that some of you may choose to check out that does talk about some different types of mushrooms uh, in the end of this at the conclusion of this little discussion we have here but let's jump right in found this at feedthedatamonster.com this is a story from 2014 it's not brand new it's 2014 it's uh, written by a gentleman named Andrew Tomes time ago, back before the dinosaurs were even a twinkle in a primitive reptile's eye, and before that, reptile's ancestor was even a twinkle in a primitive amphibian's eye. Before plants thought seeds were a great idea, and invertebrates were disquietingly large, terrestrial life found itself with a bit of a problem. We're in the Carboniferous period and one of the world's biggest coal deposits are being laid down in the first forests. The atmosphere is much different than in modern times. Carbon dioxide concentrations are approaching disastrously low levels, and oxygen is soaring. The foot-long dragonflies that flit through this dense, breathable atmosphere are having a good time, but we're on the brink of a major ice age caused by global cooling. The culprits of this looming disaster are the last we'd suspect. Trees. To understand why, we need to turn back the clock even further. Around 90 million years before the Carboniferous period, and 430 million years before the present, first vascular plants emerged from early tide pools. In order to stay upright, these plants employed cellulose, a chain of simple sugars known as glucose, which is, I guess, two glucose molecules make up sucrose, or table sugar, so it has their This was great for plants, because it was easy to make and offered rigid yet flexible support. But it made life difficult for decomposers, who needed an oxygen, who needed an enzyme, excuse me, that could turn cellulose back to digestible glucose. Bacteria and fungi eventually evolved this ability, but animals never would, and they became dependent on symbioses with these simpler organisms. By the dawn of the Carboniferous period, plants developed a new kind of support material called lignin. 
Lignin was an improvement development over cellulose in several ways. It was harder, more rigid, and being more complex, almost impossible to digest, which made it ideal for protecting cellulose. With lignin, plants could make wood, and it led to the first tree-like growth form. One of the early founders of these primeval forests was Lepidodendron, from the Greek lepido, meaning scale, and dendron, meaning tree. I found that interesting because, you know, I didn't know the dendron that we're familiar with from philodendron or rhododendron, probably a few other dendrons out there is you know, where that came from, so that was cool. So named for the leaf scars that resulted in a scaly trunk. So scale tree, right? Scaly trunk tree. And they have a cool picture of it in the article here that will be in the show notes, of course. Lepidodendron wasn't a true tree, but a member of an early offshoot of the higher plants known as lycopods, today comprised of the much smaller club mosses and quill warts. Based on reconstruction of the fossils, it is estimated that Lepidodendron stood a stately 100 feet tall, putting it at the very top range of the early flora and head and shoulders above many trees that exist today. As the Carboniferous period continued, Lepidodendron and its cousins spanned the tropics in vast forested swamps. Here's the crux of our problem. Lignin made the lycopod trees a little too successful. Because their leaves were lofted above many herbivores, and their trunks were made inedible by lignin, lycopods were virtually impervious to harm. They grew and died in vast quantities, and their trunks piled up in swamps, eventually becoming submerged and locking huge quantities of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere for good in the form of coal. Without any decomposition to recycle this carbon, atmospheric carbon dioxide levels crashed, leading to global cooling and making it much harder for plants to grow. Atmospheric oxygen concentration, in turn, soared to an estimated 35%, much higher than the 20% of modern times. Why was all this lignin laying around in the first place? Plenty of organisms had found a way to make use of cellulose. So why didn't they jump on this new source of energy that was laying around free for the taking? There are several reasons. First, whereas cellulose was made of glucose, which can be readily converted to energy, lignin was based on phenol, a derivative of benzene, which is only a good energy source when it's on fire. This isn't a solution for your average bacterium. Digesting lignin was so difficult that lycopods had free reign over the planet for over 40 million years leading to the world's first and only wood pollution crisis. Finally, however, a fungus belonging to the class Agaricomycetes. Agaricomycetes, that's a mouthful. Making it a distant cousin of button mushrooms, did find a crude way to break down lignin. 
Rather than devise an enzyme to unstitch the lignin molecule, however, it was forced to adopt a more direct strategy. Using a class of enzymes called perioxidases, the fungus bombarded the wood with highly reactive oxygen molecules in much the same way one might untie a knot using a flamethrower. <laughs> Interesting analogy. This strategy reduced the wood to a carbohydrate-rich slurry from which the fungus could slurp up the edible cellulose. Another really cool diagram, which is a uh, larger uh, line art piece in the uh, classic textbook style. Uh, they continue. This was the one and only time in the last 300 million years that the wood rotting ability evolved. All the fungi today that can digest wood, and a few that can't, are the descendants of that enterprising fungus. Its strategy may have been inelegant, but wood decay played a crucial role in reversing the loss of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and bringing about the end of the Carboniferous period. So cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's like, so these are your, you know, your oyster mushrooms and, you know, chicken of the woods and all those cool mushrooms you see out there you know, decomposing and turning the forest into the, into the undergrowth, turning it into hummus and into soil. Uh, he concludes, what would have happened if white rot fungi had never evolved? We can only speculate, but it's possible the world of today look a lot like the world at the end of the Carboniferous period. Cooler, high in oxygen, and with a denser atmosphere. Dragonflies with foot-and-a-half wingspans might still roam the forests, but the plant life might still be primeval, stifled by the lower carbon dioxide concentrations. Many a homeowner may disagree, but we're lucky wood-rotting fungi evolved. Uh, to give full credit where it's due, uh, they have a bio for our author, Andrew Tomes, here. And it reads, Andrew Tomes is an MS student at, so that must be master's, master's student at SUNY ESF in Syracuse, whose work focuses on the mycorrhizal partners of the American chestnut. He earned his BS in botany from the University of Maine where he worked on a wetland restoration. When not in the field, the lab, or the classroom, he can often be found in the kitchen, cooking bread. All right. Uh, read that story and check out his sources, as well as those diagrams at feedthedatamonster.com. Link will be in the show notes for you for sure. circling back around on that Smithsonian Magazine of course when you read one story like that you find another and uh, this one is really cool it, I'm not going to read this whole article I'm going to let you know that uh, I'm read some highlights from it though as well as the headline with fungi in the mix concrete can fill its own cracks so let's you know fungi already saved the world once just this afternoon we didn't know but it did, uh, probably is every day, right? Uh, and now we have a story about this. They're going to put fungi in concrete, or already are. 
Adding fungus might be the one way to endow concrete with the ability to repair any damage without the need for human intervention. So I'll just shut up and start reading the story, which I found, like I said, Smithsonian Magazine. Congri Jin from The Conversation is this uh, column. I hope I said Congri's name correctly. January 23rd, this just came out, too. Infrastructure supports and facilities, facilitates, infrastructure supports and facilitates our daily lives. Think of the roads we drive on, bridges and tunnels that help transport people and freight, the office buildings where we work, and the dams that provide the water we drink. It's no secret that American infrastructure is aging and in desperate need of rehabilitation. Concrete structures in particular suffer from serious deterioration. Cracks are very common due to various chemical and physical phenomena that occur during everyday use. Concrete shrinks as it dries, which can cause cracks. It can crack when there's movement underneath or thanks to freeze and thaw cycles over the course of the seasons. Simply putting too much weight on it can cause fractures. Even worse, steel bars embedded in concrete as reinforcement can corrode over time. So, you know, they tell us a little bit more about the ways, you know, things can be damaged. Um, but they, yeah, let's go to the good part. So they're showing us some diagrams of the stores. They say here, we propose including fungal spores together with nutrients during the initial mixing process when building a new concrete structure. When the inevitable cracking occurs and water finds its way in, the dormant fungal spores will germinate. As they grow, they'll work as a catalyst within the calcium-rich conditions of the concrete to pr promote precipitation of calcium carbonate crystals. This is awesome. The mineral deposits can fill in the cracks. When the cracks are completely coughed and no more water can enter, the fungi will again form spores. If the cracks form again and environmental conditions become favorable, the spores could wake up and repeat the process. So the spore they want to use, I think, here is called T. Reese. T. Reese is eco-friendly and non-pathogenic, posing no known risk to human health. Despite its widespread presence in tropical soils, there are no reports of adverse effects in aquatic or terrestrial plants or animals. In fact, T. Reese has a long history of safe use in industrial-scale production of carbohydrate enzymes, known as cellulase, which plays an important role in fermentation processes during winemaking. Of course, researchers will need to conduct a thorough assessment to investigate any possible immediate and long-term effects on the environment and human health prior to its use as a healing agent in concrete infrastructure. They conclude here, we still don't fully understand this very young but promising biological repair technique. Concrete is a harsh environment for the fungus. Very high pH values, relatively small pore sizes, even, or excuse me, severe moisture deficit, high temperatures in summer and low temperatures in winter, limited nutrient availability and possible exposure to ultraviolet rays from sunlight. 
all of these factors dramatically influence the fungi's metabolic activities and make them vulnerable to death. Our research is still in the initial stage, and there's a long way to go to make self-healing concrete, practical, and cost-effective. But the scope of American infrastructure's challenges, American infrastructure's challenges, excuse me, makes exploring creative solutions like this one worthwhile. So, uh, yeah, it was originally published in a, in a publication called The Conversation. Kongrui Jin, assistant professor of mechanical engineering, Binghamton University, State University of New York, SUNY New York. So, no, no wonder we heard, we read both those stories uh, one after the other. I'm sure that cookies helped me with that, find that one, right? Uh, Alright, I thought it was cool though. Cool story, if you ask me. This one, however, this next one, I don't know if it's as cool, it's uh, a little bit disconcerting. Uh, so my friend Corey Rashad from Facebook posted this one uh, for me today and you know, for all of us, and uh, he shared this story from Motherboard, so here we are on Vice again. Um, story. The headline is, We are fucked. Everyone is making AI-generated fake porn now. A user-friendly application has resulted in an explosion of convincing face-swap porn. But they're not playing around. So, uh, this story came out on, yeah, the 24th, and uh, this was written by Samantha Cole. And uh, she tells us, In December, Motherboard discovered a Redditor, right, they're on Reddit, named, quote, Deepfakes, quietly enjoying his hobby, face-swapping celebrity faces onto porn performers' bodies. He made several convincing porn videos of celebrities, including Gal Gadot, Maisie Williams, and Taylor Swift using a machine learning algorithm, his home computer, publicly available videos, and some spare time. Just a puff. Try not to start speed reading on you again. crazy, you guys, and has crazy implications. It's the reason why we're talking about porn here. Since we first wrote about deep fakes, that's the Redditor in question who showed this video initially, the practice of producing AI-assisted fake porn has exploded. More people... <laughs> Excuse me, that was a terribly stifled sneeze. More people are creating fake celebrity porn using machine learning, and the results have become increasingly convincing. Another Redditor even created an app specifically designed to allow users without a computer science background to create AI-assisted fake porn. All the tools one needs to make these videos are free, 
readily available, and accompanied with instructions that walk novices through the process. I'm like holding my head in my hands <laughs> right now all over again reading this again. Um, these are developments we and the experts we spoke to warned about in our original article. They have arrived with terrifying speed. So they link to their original article here. We're reading, we're reading the updated article about this. Shortly after Motherboard published its story, Deepfakes created a subreddit named after himself dedicated to this practice two months ago. In that short time, it has already amassed more than 15,000 subscribers. Within the community, the word deepfake itself is now a noun for the kinds of neural network-generated fake videos their namesake pioneered. Another user called Deepfake App created Fake App, a user-friendly application that allows anyone to create these videos with their own data sets. The app is based on Deepfake's algorithm. The Deepfake app created Deepfake. Uh, Deepfake app created Fake app without the help of the original Deepfakes. I messaged Deepfakes, but he didn't respond to a request for comment on the newfound popularity of his creation. Deepfake app told me in a Reddit direct message that his goal with creating Fake app was to make Deepfakes technology available to people without a technical background or programming experience. There's open source connection. I think the current version of the app is a good start, he says, but I hope to streamline it even more in coming days and weeks. Eventually, I want to improve it to the point where prospective users can simply select a video on their computer, download a neural network correlated to a certain face from a publicly available library, and swap the video with a different face with the press of a button. In early January, shortly after Motherboard's first deepfake story broke, I called Peter Eckersley, chief computer scientist for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we've talked about the EFF before here on the show, to talk about the implications of this technology on society at large. Quote, I think we're on the cusp of this technology being really easy and widespread, he told me, adding that deepfakes were pretty difficult to make at the time. You can make fake videos with neural networks today, but people will be able to tell that you've done it if you look closely. Some of the techniques involved remain pretty advanced. That's not going to stay true for more than a year or two. In fact, that barely stayed true for two months. We counted dozens of users who were experimenting with AI-assisted fake porn, some of which have created incredibly convincing videos. They have an embedded short GIF of a Jessica Alba fake swap, you know, face swap fake, you know, and this is like an extension of your Snapchat face swap filters, you know, that kind of thing. All right. Obviously, you know, anybody who's used apps like that can uh, understand where they're going with this. Um, it says here, Redditor unobtrusive bot put Jessica Alba's face on the porn performer Melanie Rios body using fake app. Super quick one. Just learning how to retrain my model, quote, around five-ish hours. 
decent for what it is, they wrote in a comment. When they say retrain my model, they mean their AI, you know, model here that's following the bodies, you know, the, the real face underneath, the face that's mapped on top. So, uh, next, uh, Redditor Nutty Nutter6969 used fake app to put Daisy Ridley's face on another porn performer. So I think Daisy Ridley's from Star Wars, right? Um, fakes posted in the subreddit have already been pitched as real on other websites. Alright, so here it goes. Starts, obviously, fake, gets better to a threshold where it becomes difficult to distinguish between the fake and the real people. So now the Fugazi is, you know, being passed off as the real stone and is moving beyond the original circles it was circulated in or perhaps being created in the first place to go out to the wider net, to the wider world. Um, so to get back to it, um, deep fake of Emma Watson taking a shower was re-uploaded by Celeb Jihad, a celebrity porn site that regularly posts hacked celebrity nudes as a quote never before seen video above is from my private collection and appears to feature Emma Watson fully nude and flaunting her naked sex organs while showering with another girl I feel sleazy just reading those words out loud sorry Ms. Watson my apologies other Redditors have taken video trained from celebrities' public Instagram stories and used them to transfer faces onto nude Snapchats posted by amateurs. Bam! Snapchat. I lucked out that this amateur does similar silly dancing moves and facial expressions as Chloe sometimes does in her Instagram stories, the creator of a deep fake of actress Chloe Bennett wrote. Most of the posts in our deepfakes so far are porn, but some users are also creating videos that show the far-reaching implication of a technology that allows anyone with sufficient raw footage to work with to convincingly place any face in any video. A user named ZeroCool22, with a three for the E in that name, combined footage of Hitler with Argentina's president Maurizio Macri, story here. According to Deepfake App, anyone who can download and run fake app can create one of these videos with only one or two high-quality videos of the faces they want to fake. The subreddit's wiki states that fake app is a, quote, community-developed desktop app to run Deepfake's algorithm without installing Python, TensorFlow, etc. And that all one needs to do to run it is have a good GPU, the kind that high-end 3D video games require, with CUDA support, NVIDIA's parallel computing platform and programming model. If users don't have the proper GPU, they can rent cloud GPUs through services like Google, Google Cloud Platform. Running the entire process from data extraction to frame-by-frame -frame conversion of one face to another would take about 8 to 12 hours if done correctly. Other people have reported spending much longer, sometimes with disastrous results. They then show a couple of hardly messed up, uh, failed attempts at these, which look like broken gifts from back in the day. Um, 
then they show a comparison of um, the CGI Carrie Fisher uh, scene uh, from Star Wars Rogue One, and then um, a, uh, a like one done by the app below it, side by side, and uh, you know they did it the same way with a little bit different. Uh, mapping of the face and, and uh, it actually kind of almost looks better um, and they you know compare the two favorably uh, pointing out that the bottom is a 20 minute fake that could have been done in essentially the same way with a visually similar actress my budget zero dollars and some Fleetwood Mac tunes so yeah because you get the uh, yeah, same level of power that you know a few years ago was reserved for a Hollywood studio and arguably improved upon at this point already. You know, and they're saying you or I could F with this if you had an Alienware laptop or a decent, you know, uh, home computer of any kind. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, they're, they're almost done here, so I'll finish it out. An incredibly easy-to-use application for DIY fake videos of sex and revenge porn, but also political speeches and whatever else you want that moves and improves at this pace could have society-changing impacts in the ways we consume media. A combination of powerful, open-source neural network research, our rapidly eroding ability to discern truth from fake news, and the way we spread news through social media has set us up for serious consequences. And yeah, so they're, they're on it here. Socially and culturally, this is exploitative, but quite survivable. Jay Owens, digital media analyst and research director at audience intelligence platform Pulsar, told me in an email. Viral videos and celebrity media already operate on a plane of pure entertainment, but this will only get sexier and memeier and lulzier and even more unreal. Deborah Johnson, Professor Emeritus of Applied Ethics at the University of Virginia's School of Engineering, told me there's no doubt this technology would get so good that it'd be impossible to tell the difference between an AI-generated face swap and the real thing. So they conclude here, you could argue that what's new is the degree to which it can be done or the believability. We're getting to the point where we can't distinguish what's real. But then, we didn't before, she said. Can't disagree there. What is new is the fact that it's now available to everybody. Or will be. It's destabilizing. The whole business of trust and reliability is undermined by this stuff. And, uh, yeah, I... Couldn't agree more with uh, that whole story. Um, I won't belabor it. You think on it. Comment on it. Email me about it. Let's talk about that and watch for the next video of this sort that breaks somewhere. The first one that breaks mainstream that we find out after we all believe it's real turns out to be one of these. Uh, all right. So we're just about wrapping it up. Let me get another... One queued up for us here. Uh, I got a couple things to close out with. So in the show notes, you're going to find a link to a uh, related reading to the fungi topic, uh, and that being how fungi saved the world. 
uh, and the self-healing concrete uh, with Fungi Tech. Um, there's a really cool book that I became aware of a year or two back, and I got a PDF version of it somewhere, so that's floating around out there on the Internet, but I'd love to get a hard copy of it at some point, and it does exist. It's called The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, or, um, and this is my own subtitle, or How Jesus Might Really Be the Fly Agaric Mushroom. Uh, so it's a really, it's actually a really thoughtful book by, I believe, someone who had some seminary background and, uh, was, I don't know if they were a Franciscan monk or what, uh, but I do believe they were, you know, an, an ecclesiastical person of some kind. They were part of the church and they were... Um, nevertheless, uh, compelled to do this analysis that, uh, you know, just posits an interesting possibility in, uh, the deep history of Christianity. And there is a very incredible case for the symbolism that is represented all throughout, um, early religion and, uh, pre-Christian religions, uh, and, uh, spiritual, um, traditions that, uh, would appear to support this uh, theory in some way, shape, or form. It's, yeah, a crazy, crazy book. It's wild. I have a link, I think, to the Wikipedia page about the story here in the show notes. And if I find the PDF somewhere still available for free, I may attach it as uh, bonus material. And I think you can get the bonus material by going, like, to the Libsyn, you know, go actually drill through the to the um, hosted page uh, for Baked in the Wake. And I'll put that link in the bottom of the show notes as well to get to the my actual, like, Libsyn hosted page. Uh, and, yeah, we'll maybe, you know, look forward to visiting on that topic in the future. But that's definitely probably a good, you know, big full episode, two-part episode kind of conversation, that one. Um, check that story out, though. All right, I've got a couple of podcasts of the week for you, though, too, um, before we go. And um, two this week, uh, both of which are kind of related topics, uh, topic that are probably favorite, you know, podcast style of mine, and that's true crime. <laughs> uh, the first is the Asian Madness podcast. Uh, and I wrote, you know, just sort of some reflections on, on it here. Jessica, the host of Asian Madness, she brings you a new true crime story. I think it's roughly weekly from somewhere in the Asian panoply of nations, you know, the whole Asian corner of the world. Her style is, I characterize it as slightly hypnotic. She calmly recounts stories of the most horrific kinds, uh, as you perch on the edge of your seat. So, uh, and listen to it. Uh, it's a great podcast, and uh, she's just getting started with uh, some really great content. I think there's a good, you know, eight or nine, maybe ten episodes out already. Uh, Asian Madness. Uh, check it out. And then the next one is another podcast by a uh, female host, and uh, that's Carla, and there might be cupcakes. Um, there might be cupcakes is like true crime from someone with a real background in like parsing and analyzing what they're dealing with and talking about. So, um, 
I really think Carla is a breath of fresh air in this whole category, and she defies my attempts to characterize her podcast. You know, it's not, I'm not doing a good job of it. I think you should listen to her. Um, check her out today if you love true crime, psychology, and great storytelling. Uh, yeah, so yeah, those are our podcasts of the week, and uh, I'm sure, you know, a, a few of you might enjoy the true crime. It's a very popular genre. All right, as always, our royalty-free music is provided by Monty Luode of SoundCloud fame, and uh, we went into the archive and dug up some new tracks for uh, this episode, so I hope you enjoyed them. Uh, I'm going to leave show notes, uh, links to the Patreon page, and also to our T Public store uh, here for you, and uh, I would love, love, love it if... Uh, any of you made it over to the Tea Public store and picked up some stickers or a, a coffee mug or a t-shirt, um, any of that fun stuff. Um, there's even tote bags and stuff and phone cases. Uh, it supports the show. It would help get the word out about the show. Uh, you know, we'd get a buck or two, um, you know, from just about everything on there, which would be wonderful. Um, but yeah, that's... That's about all I got for you this week, uh, or today, that is, uh, being that this is a bonus episode and we're working on that uh, main episode for to be recorded this weekend. So, All right, everybody, I did manage to bluster about at you for 53 minutes here, so I'll let you go. You guys can see what the uh, sativa did to me. It, it really, it really, you know, got me kind of feisty. I think a little faster uh, speech, you know, a little, little edgy. Um, and that's what those hybrids uh, that lean sativa, you know, do to me. Uh, I'll probably dig around here and find some, I think we've got some indica flower in the house that I'll mess with a little later to uh, wind the day down. And speaking of which, that's what I say. I told you earlier, I'll tell you again now. You go ahead smoke indica do shit anyway